Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. I am Namita, and today I'm excited to welcome our podcast guest for the week, Karuna Ramnathan. Karuna is a transformational leadership expert with nearly three decades of experience in supporting senior leaders and organizations through difficult transformations. So, let's hear more about his journey. Hello, Karuna. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Namita, for having me on this podcast. I really appreciate it. Awesome. To start off with, could you please tell us a bit about yourself, your journey as a change maker? Gosh, you know, I get asked this often and there's so many ways to describe this, but I'll just say I've had the privilege of 39 years of work and that work has actually been peppered with working with all kinds of leaders and managers and people in general. And I think I've learned so much that actually that journey is exactly all about and remains about people. Just to briefly say, I spent a considerable amount of time starting up in the military. I was in the Navy for 19 years and I had uh, two command ship tours. And so I was captain of two warships and I had a lot of experiencing uh, quite a bit out of Singapore. And then after that, I actually had about a decade alongst in the leadership center for the military. Actually, that was just an amazing time because you could actually learn a lot about leadership and actually experiment with all kinds of programs and methods and tools. And then I had a three-year break in the government doing uh, change work, organizational development work at the highest levels of government uh, internally as a consulting leadership conversations among very senior government officers. And part of that also required that I actually consulted in uh, Brunei on some of their quite difficult work. And for the last seven years, I've been doing this pretty much as an independent. I today have the privilege to lead a small team of very committed associate consultants and we specialize in helping systems and people change faster than they would on their own accord. So we're actually a very important addition to the execution challenge and demand that transformation often has to deal with. And along with that, all the people and culture issues. I hope that kind of sums it up, Namita. Amazing. So how do you do this? How have you let's say, empowered senior leaders over the past three decades. If you could give us some examples. We immediately empathize with senior leaders. I mean, uh, there's a lot being said about what leadership is and what leadership is not. And I think I have had vantage views of it. Uh, Let me explain. I have had time in the military and anyone who's worked in the military would probably, okay, let's put it this way. If you have not worked in the military, you might be excused for not fully appreciating what leaders are truly capable of. And before we run away and say that all military leaders are good and most of the good leaders are from the military, it warrants a little bit of introspection because as a system, the military actually trains its leaders rigorously and actually makes them accept the fundamental philosophy of unlimited liability. So accountability in the military is on every leader in position. Now, that's a huge ask, Namita, when you actually look at organizations today. There's no way that model can be replicated. So you have all these wonderful examples of leaders at war, in war, in peacetime, in crisis, doing, going beyond themselves, throwing themselves on very difficult and dangerous situations. None of that is replicable in ordinary life. I mean, it's just completely impossible to do that with the resources. 
Now, the other end of the spectrum, I've actually worked with government, and in government, there are leadership positions, but if one has not worked in government, then one might be excused for not being able to fully appreciate just how incapable these leaders might seem. And I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean, I just want to point out that as a system, government is accountable as a system. It is often not as individual people in leadership positions. So you might be wondering why these leaders appear to be so ineffective, why they're all of the same code and that. Just the context for that leadership is exactly quite different from that. It sits opposite a structured military hierarchical organization. Then there's another system. When I was doing my PhD in leadership, I actually worked with and in academia for a while because that's a requirement. And if you're in academia, you might be excused for trying to fit a definition of leadership and proving it. And that by itself is just hugely impossible to do because leadership is all contextual and is driven by practice. So no two organizations have the same leadership demand. And finally, and today these days, I actually work with uh, many organizations and clients and senior teams and coming to your question directly. What I encounter in most organizations is this fantasy view of the ideal leader whether it's authenticity or whether it's my boss needs to be this, but actually, hey, wait a minute. These are human beings. Just like all of us, we all have our issues. We are not as aware as we ought to be. We don't manage our emotions as best as we can. And so a lot of my work starts with actually helping leaders accept the fact that they're human beings. Right. So well said. I'm sure like, you know, even I empathize with leaders, sometimes they try so hard to fit into that template that others have created for them. And it's so difficult then to live up to everyone's expectations. So well said, they're humans and that's something we all need to remember. So what really motivated you to focus on people and culture when transforming organizations? Leaders often overestimate their knowledge. And it's quite commonplace. And there are good reasons for that. I mean, if you are in a leadership position, you are probably, you have earned the right to be there either by, I don't know, you know, by your education, by the pedigree, by some of the experience. Of course, the other model is you have risen up the ranks. And so knowledge or assumed knowledge is obviously a very big thing. You are supposed to be, or you think you are cleverer, smarter than other people. That actually just accounts for the five to 10% in an organization. Or things are generally stable and they're understandable to everyone and it's all rule-based and it's an ordered environment. I don't think you have too much of a problem because the predictability of events allows for that smartness or that cleverness to actually dominate in some way. And I'm an organizational transformation consultant and coach. When you get into that difficult space of having to shift the organization, we very quickly have to accept the fact that strategy doesn't shift it. Strategy starts the movement. And strategy is actually far easier to get to because you can literally buy it. The strategy simply involves finding out what everyone is doing, where you want to go, and actually pinning down where you think you ought to be and those things. Getting the organization to move into that new state is not the singular province of leaders. It actually is the middle managers who actually need to execute the change. 
my our work takes us into how we bring that strategy into the system faster than the system would be able to cope with it. Basically, we shift systems for for senior leaders and organizations, and we use behavioral consulting principles for that. So there's a lot of psychology, sociology, group dynamics, so the feel of organizational development, the feel of leadership development, the whole idea behind mental health, work-life balance, everything comes to play. The ultimate aim is to make the manager a leader. That, and it's no longer an alien concept. We just celebrated Mother's Day. In my opinion, every mother is a leader, you know, it's as simple as that. Absolutely. Could you share some of your experiences working with the Prime Minister's office in Singapore and the Brunei government? What were the key challenges you faced? How did you address them? I think when you put many clever people in a room, you don't necessarily have a very clear direction. So true. They're just very clever and good people and you don't have that. And then you begin to wonder the work that you do is going to get you anywhere. And these are big and difficult and complex systems. It is not easy to forge a collective because what government, and you asked me the question regarding both government systems, predominantly government systems are comprised of senior leaders who often like to coordinate rather than collaborate. Yeah, these are well-defined rules and so people stay within their spaces and safe lines and their boundaries and those boundaries are not permeable. They are not supposed to be broken and so that's the experience I had. It was frustrating at times but it was understandable and I think the way that we did both pieces of work, I mean the Brunei work actually got World Bank recognition for the shift we made on the ease of doing business but that was quite intense and there was an element of power in it because it was under the urgency and there was ministerial uh, emphasis on it. So when you have politics back down, you actually have movements that take place. And governments are really good at managing crises. So until you get to a crisis and they form a task force, then you get the powerful attention that you need to get to the problem. But that methodology is not sustainable. You actually want a whole system to be working together regularly. So collaboration doesn't sit too well in government. And I think we still struggle with that because of the affiliations and all the dynamics that you actually see in the power plays and the covert resistance that you get from well-entrenched, well-developed government functions. Uh, that's been my experience. I always say this to my clients. I think uh, one of the most difficult places to actually engender or to actually design transformation and execute it successfully is government. Right. So as a published author on leadership, what key principles or insights do you emphasize in your work? How do you believe they can positively impact leaders and their organizations? I just highlight two principles all the time. The first one is leadership is influence. It's tempting to think of it as power. And to some extent, we associate leaders with power. Here I am saying that leadership is actually influence and it's never been power. It sits in power. So that's the first point I make. And influence is relational relatability. It is actually how people would feel you. And then you get into the trust game and then you ask whether you can have that intentional impact with people. And that requires a lot of work and it does not sit very well with power. Often leaders assume that power is actually quite synonymous with influence. So I go back to the point leaders often overemphasize or overestimate their knowledge. And I would say that employees often underestimate their influence. So there's a lot we can do 
to actually help managers and supervisors and project managers and team leaders who constitute the 30% or 40% of an organization to actually start turning on the switch where they can influence people positively. That's the first. The second is accountability. And I'm really, really uncomfortable. It comes on the book. I grew up in a space where the individual leader is completely accountable for the well-being of his or her people. And I still truly hold on to that. The leader and only the leader is accountable for the outcome. This is a very difficult time. You know, post-pandemic, we are actually having discussions around mental health as if we need to solve the problem. I actually get quite mildly annoyed with it because actually why? I mean, would you like it if you had to go out and say that your son or your daughter or your brother or your sister was suffering from mental health problems. I mean, seriously, that's really where I am with accountability. So those are the two principles. Leadership is by definition to me influence. It's a working definition that I hold. Basically, the accountability needs to be brought quite visibly into the equation. How do you approach teaching postgraduate programs? What are some key lessons or skills you aim to impart to your students? Because I did two modules or two stints in both the univers major universities in Singapore, one about 15 years ago when I was a PhD student and the other after I got my PhD in the National University of Singapore Business School. The modules were practical modules. The first one was knowledge creation and the second one, the more recent one, was managing change. Both these modules actually don't stamp or anchor on academic theories. They actually are practitioner theories. What I try to impart on the students is actually Actually, the level of learning and curiosity, the team, the effect of team, the idea that they would need to constantly learn to gain insights and to adapt. And so my teaching students have never included case studies. I totally believe that every individual's lived experience for leadership work, be it change or adaptive or foundational, is largely the sum of introspecting on one's personal experiences and making sense of it to the extent that you could either learn from it and share it or watch it and not repeat those mistakes. And that's exactly what I try to get to the students. Moving on, just tell us a bit about this whole Corporate Social Responsibility Award that you have received. Could you elaborate on the initiatives or projects that led to this recognition? I think we got picked up for one of the top 10 organizational development consulting groups in Asia, one of the more promising ones. It looks like a CSR award, but actually it's for a whole lot of stuff that we do. We are very values-based. We are totally committed to, and I think if we were going to write another, if I was going to write a second book, it would be the plight of the middle manager. So we totally believe that people actually come to work hoping to be successful and to find fulfillment and do their best. And you need to find ways to let people to do that in a respectful, empathetic way. And so we are all into people and we are responsible for the people who work in organizations and we want to just drive that message home very clearly. Now, it's quite different to say that we must love everyone and we must enjoy everyone's skills and talents and all that stuff. It's all humanistic, but it's quite different from where we are coming from. We believe that every individual has the ability to be successful. That's our philosophy of our work. As a Marshall Goldsmith Global Certified Coach, how do you help leaders boost self-awareness, emotional intelligence, and their ability to drive change? Could you share some strategies? Marshall is a mentor. So, I mean, I have three coaching certifications, but this one in particular draws me because Marshall's really straight down the line. Marshall has four books. The most recent one is The Earned Life, the, the tension between regret and fulfillment. Basically, have you lived a fulfilled life or are you still in a life of regret? So those concepts are really big. What got you here will not get you there. You can be successful. The triggers that actually 
actually stall our behaviors and make us less successful. So the, typically the Marshall methodology is very suited for C-suite coaching because it is actually very precise, targeted and data driven. And I think people who are in those positions or who are aspiring to be C-suite would actually pay close attention to potential blind sides and derailers that they may not get information on, which a Marshall coach can actually responsibly give them from outside the system within the coaching privilege, ethical guidance and rules so that they actually have a real chance at reaching their potential. So I actually use the Marshall methodology quite extensively when I'm actually in a privileged position of coaching senior leaders. I would say that it is very precise and it's targeted and it's based on, I mean, if you look at some of the feedback mechanisms they have, they're actually compared to 15 global C-suite competencies. So I think Marshall is a really, not promoting it, but it's been really worked well for me. And I would say that uh, the C-suite leaders have benefited tremendously from it. According to KR Consulting's client survey, you have achieved an average 20% increase in self-awareness and a 15% increase in the ability to drive change. Now, what are some common obstacles that leaders face in these areas and how do you help them overcome these challenges? Let's start by saying that those of us who have attended leadership programs in the past would often associate it with three-day workshops, five-day, maybe a week's workshops, and we might just try to sit through those workshops. And the data coming out of it is largely learning retention at 8%. I mean, it's quite well known. It's quite well published. Maybe about 10% at most. And what this simply means is a month or two after the workshop, if you ask the participant, what did you take away? It's probably a faint recall of one or two important concepts that he or she would have picked up. Now, of course, there are some very good leadership programs in the world and they're quite well known, right, globally. And those take months to complete. They induce, they actually have coaching. They have all those other additions as well. And they have luminaries like CEOs or ex-CEOs talking to them. And the retention there seems to be 25 to 30%. It's not as well published as the 8%, but we know this from practice, from live lived experience. And there is a data point because in 2009, in fact, it was Marshall Goldsmith who did the Johnson & Johnson Global Change Leadership Program. And 2000 executives in that story were put in a two-year leadership conversion program and he reported about 50% looked interested but the conversion rate meaning how many of them had actually crossed over and actually gained from that program and started practicing quite effectively what they had learned was about 35 to 40% and no more than that and he said that it was actually quite good. Now KR Consulting makes it a point to raise those figures and the obstacles we get are often the inertia, discard, I mean, basically disinterest. Immediately, we use psychometric instruments to try to bring data to people as to where their self-awareness might need to be and basically what gaps they might see. And we actually advocate the success paradigm. So basically, the reason you want to change is basically what you think you ought to do to become more successful. Successful. And we work with them and we run a few of these programs and that's why our numbers go up. Transforming organizations, we are quite well known for the success in our change leadership programs. What it simply means is we take the nominated participants and we put them through a six-month program on the projects and if nothing of it is case study, they actually learn the practicum of how to open up that project in their organization through a range of sense-making methodologies, techniques and team-building techniques and we are quite well known for that. I would say that the numbers have gone up since those figures were published. We are now proudly in the 50 to 75% region. Now compared to the 30 to 40 region, it means a 20 to 30% jump. 
The other and more difficult program that we've run is the middle manager program. And these are people who are not the talent, not nominated, but who are doing the daily operational work. And they are obviously feeling the middle squeeze. And they are obviously a little confused right now because there's so many conflicting and disturbing, really difficult requirements. And we help them do three things to overcome these obstacles to go to your question. The first is we help them work across the organization instead of just looking down and trying to manage up. So for most managers, that's an amazing skill to have. And you suddenly feel you can actually connect with your peers and you can actually find ways in which you can be more effective cross-functionally in an organization. It's a new skill. The second is the old problem of working with people we like and we associate with. And we teach them to work with people they don't like because our philosophy is your happiness is at home and your success is at work. So it's a professional relationship. A lot of what we do at work is no choice relationship. A lot of what we choose to do at home is choice relationship. The third thing we do is we give them the confidence that they can lead the learning in a team and most of them like that. So the numbers for the adaptive leaders are somewhere in the 60 percentile as well. And that's really good outcome comes for us. And like I said, we are quite well known in this space. It's a pretty niche space, but that is what we specialize in. And we have committed associates to actually do this quite well. If you have 30 leaders in a program with us, if we take 30 leaders, we have 30 case studies. They are individual case studies. They are all very different. And that's what we do. So finally, what advice you would like to give to individuals who aspire to make a positive difference in the world and create lasting change in their organizations? I would say that everyone can become a leader. It's the way we were made. We are different. From the time we came out of the caves to hunt, we were already leaders. From the time mothers realized that they have children and they can bear children and that their responsibility and accountability for their children will be in their character and their values, they are leaders. I cannot see how someone would say I'm not a leader because that is no longer positionalist influence. Of course, you can choose not to want to influence anyone and you can choose to live your life, but I think those people are a small minority. Therefore, the potential for the world to reclaim its sanity is in its people, in its power. It's not in the structures. It's not in the climate. It's not in all those. Those things matter. That's it. So you can be a leader without position. Yes. Well said. With that, we have come to the segment of our show, which we call it Rapid Fire. It's our version of a game show. So I'm going to ask you four questions and yeah, it's a rapid fire. So whatever comes first to your mind, just go for it. Are you ready? Yes. So what's your favorite motivational quote? Overcome, improvise, adapt. One piece of advice you always stand by. It is what it is. Oh yeah. Who is your biggest inspiration? There are two people actually. I realized it quite late in life that my late mother was an inspiration. And I now put my inspiration person down to my wife, who actually has spent 33 years with me. I think that is just an amazing phenomenon. Okay, three key qualities of a successful leader. This one, we want to see in our leaders, humility. That is actually something that can be quite consciously practiced. But underpinning humility is the second point, empathy. So that ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Now, underpinning empathy is the basic belief of respect. And most people are brought up well enough by their parents to actually capable of it. So the three key qualities are respect, empathy, and humility. Thank you. That was very rapid indeed. Before we wrap up, we would like to ask you about your green pill moment. So, what was your green pill moment, Karuna, the action or event that was the turning point for you or your career? 
I think having started up and been very fortunate to have enjoyed the privilege of being in the Navy and commanding warships is actually a very, very heady proposition. I mean, at the age of 38, I was in command of a warship that was 150 meters long, nine stories high, and had carried two helicopters and could sail for months. Having to leave that and step down from that artificiality was a major moment for me. It was a very difficult decision, especially I felt like I had to rebuild everything associated with my self-esteem and my, you know, that whole construct of what success would look like. It remains for me a green pill moment. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your fantastic and inspiring story with us today. I'm very sure our listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy this conversation as much as I have. Before we say goodbye, Karna, could you please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you? At www.krk.sg. And if you need to write to me directly, it's Karuna, K-A-R-U-N-A at krk.sg. And I will get back to you even if it takes a few days. I'm more than happy to help you if you decide to be a leader that you are truly capable of. Amazing. We're going to put these details in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Karuna. It was lovely speaking with you. Namita, thank you for this privilege. It was great talking to you too. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.